This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of March 15th, 2021. Uh, It is the second week of Katie Couric as guest host, and they are continuing to uh, match the contestants' winnings in donations to the Pancreatic Cancer Dream Team from Stand Up to Cancer. Which I wondered, who's on the Dream Team? How did they recruit the Dream Team? (laughs) Like, did they go to all the different pancreatic cancer research centers and take the all-stars, you know what I mean? You know? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah. There's no way of knowing. Anyway, uh, on Monday, we have the contestants Tom Duffy, an engineering manager originally from Chicago, Illinois, Kathleen McNutt, a graduate student from Skokie, Illinois, and Dave Pye, a field application scientist originally from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, whose two-day cash winnings total $32,700. And the Jeopardy round categories are The Squad, Financial Terms, That's Totally Lit, Real Life Cartoon Characters, Eight Letter Words, and Nation of the Airlines. Tom ran Financial Terms, but I think didn't get recognized for it because uh, it was out of order. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. We had... uh, the bottom three clues as the 15th, 16th, and 17th picks, and then came back to it a while later uh, as the 26th and 27th. So he got all five of those correct, but nobody noticed at the time. Right. Um, yeah, because yeah. I mean, that's the danger of jumping around. You'll never run a category. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the $200 level of real-life cartoon characters, um, we had... A fun one, I thought. Sigourney mm-hmm. Weaver says, Hello, I'm Sigourney Weaver. Several times as a voice heard in an aquarium in this Pixar sequel. Um, and of course, that is Finding Dory. I remember being amused by Sigourney Weaver, <laughs> Weaver as the uh, <laughs> sort of prominently credited uh, voice of like the uh, informational auditorium voiceovers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thought that was fun. Dave got it. That category also is where we found the first Daily Double at the $1,000 level. It was the 18th pick. And Dave found this one and wagered 4000 of his $8,200. Uh, Kathleen was at zero at this point. Dave was at 3400 And Tom got the clue. This mystic continues to haunt the Romanovs from beyond the grave in the 1997 cartoon Anastasia. Tom knew that one. I don't know if it was because he listened to my deep dive. (laughs) Probably. Uh, But that is Rasputin. Uh Yeah, so we talked about Rasputin a while back. Maybe it was in the summer or so? Yeah, I I think so. It was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Tom is in a solid lead with 13,000. Dave is at 6,400. Kathleen's gotten onto the board and has 1,000. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. A college conference call, art, historic places, spaced out, T-O-C. Every response has those three 
letters. Um, I think it turned out to be all. She just said has those three letters, but it was things that, you know, phrases, be- three word phrases. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Beginning with those three letters. It's not just that those three letters come up somewhere. Mm-hmm. And TV finales. I'm sure you got the $400 level of TV finales. I sure did. The clue there was the welcome to Sunnydale sign collapses into the crater that was once the city as the Hellmouth finally closes. And that, of course, is the finale of my favorite television series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh-huh. And I'm sure you got the $800 level. Oh, you know, I did. I did. Yeah. That's Andy and April have a baby. Tom Haverford publishes Failure, an American success story. That's Parks and Recreation. One of my mm-hmm. favorite shows. Absolutely. Uh, I thought that category actually kind of ran fairly easy. I realize if you don't know any of the characters, then, you know, if you don't know it, then you have no, like, touch point for it. But Mm -hmm. uh, I got them, so I usually don't do that well on TV categories. Mm, Okay. Yeah, I couldn't bring the name of the $2,000 one to mind. Uh, That clue was Regina sets out to reunite all the realms in Storybrooke. Mm Tom got that one. It was Once Upon a Time. I knew that it was some kind of fairy tale-esque phrase, but I couldn't quite remember what it was. Yeah. I watched the first few seasons. They were good, but then it it just it just kept going and going. Mm, going yeah. way too long, in my opinion. Uh, Daily Double number two is in the college conference call category. It's pick number 11. It's at the $1,200 level. Kathleen finds it. She's at 4,200, uh, behind Dave's 9,200 and Tom's 15,800. He's doing quite well. And she wagers 3,000. She gets the clue, Southern. This school was established in 1842 and combined with the Arsenal to form the South Carolina Military Academy. She gets that right with what is the Citadel? My South Carolinian in-laws were all very excited (laughs) to see that one. Nice. I got tagged in some Facebook posts. <laughs> nice. Uh, Daily Double number three comes up in the spaced out category at the $800 level. It's the 27th pick, and Kathleen finds this one as well. Um, again, she wagers 3000 uh, This time she has 12400 to Tom's 19000 and Dave's 13600 She gets the clue term for the first stage of a rocket. It refers to the extra power needed during liftoff. She guesses what is a propeller, uh, but that's not correct. The correct response here is what is a booster? Mm -hmm. The last few clues go to uh, Tom and Dave. And so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Kathleen is at 9,400, Dave is at 15,600, and Tom is at 21,400. So everyone's still in it, but man, that's that's a high-scoring game. And they get the Final Jeopardy category, Fictional Places. And the clue is, introduced to readers in 2008, its name comes from a Latin phrase for bread and circuses, offerings used to appease the masses. Kathleen writes, what is Panem? And that is correct. And she wagered 6201, so she moves up to 15,601. Just ahead of Dave. Uh, Dave also wrote What is Panem? And he wagered 5801, so he moves up to 21401, which is a dollar ahead of Tom. And Tom also got it correct with What is Panem? And he wagered 10,000, uh, which is a cover bet and a couple. 
couple couple hundred. Uh, so mm-hmm. he is the champion at thirty one thousand four hundred. And of course, Katie points out that that's from Hunger Games. The Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the Latin phrase in question is "panem et circenses." Yes, uh, bread and circuses. Yeah. So on Tuesday, we have the contestants Wendy Volker, a nonprofit fundraising professional from Twinsburg, Ohio. Brendan Sargent, a community organizer originally from Worcester, Massachusetts. That's my hometown. Oh, hey, is Brendan. it? Oh, is it? Wow. Uh, yeah. I, I never knew that. <laughs> never mentioned it. <laughs> and Tom Duffy, an engineering manager originally from Chicago, Illinois, whose one-day cash winnings total $31,400. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Role in Common, Time for an App, Small Mammals, what a dive. Atlanta News Clues presented by the team at Atlanta's 11 Alive News Team and Hard Hitting Words. Mm-hmm. And apparently, World Wrestling Entertainment popularized this term similar to Beatdown we learned in the Hard Hitting Words at the $400 level. That's Smackdown. Mm-hmm. I did not realize that that had come to us via wrestling. Hmm. Although it, I, yeah, it makes sense. It does make sense. I, I had not realized that either. I wouldn't... Mm-hmm. I didn't get to it. I was like, "What? what's a wrestling move? And then he said Smackdown. I was like, oh. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes mm-hmm. sense. We had a triple stumper in the role in common category. The $1,000 level. Carolyn Jones and Angelica Houston. Wendy rang mm. in but didn't offer a guess. I mean, iconic. That's Morticia Adams. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have any more to add to that other than the Adams Family movies are just incredible and wonderful. I'm not sure I've actually, like, I know uh, of them. Like, I'm very familiar with, like, the clips and the gifs, but I'm not yeah. sure I've ever actually sat down and watched the Adams Family oh, movies. It, they speak to 90s kids like you wouldn't believe. It is, mm. it is the right kind of, like, sarcasm and sort of, like... Uh, existential dismay for mm, for the yeah. world we live in that just it's so good and it's really funny mm-hmm. it's just very very good i should watch them yes yeah i feel like the um the small mammals category like the difficulty was miscalibrated uh-huh. to uh-huh. Uh, to these contestants um at the $200 level, named for another creature, this bitter, complaining type of mole is the world's smallest at less than half an ounce. Um, Brendan tried what is a mole rat, turned into a triple stumper. The shrew mole is the correct answer here. Mm-hmm. That is a correct, that is a $200 level response that I had not heard of. Yeah, I was like, well, um, I, I know a shrew is a thing, but is there a shrew yeah. mole? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Bitter complaining type of mole. I guess you were supposed to get from yeah. bitter complaining to a uh, you know kind of the colloquial or uh, like the alternate use of of the word shrew. Right. Um, figure it out that way. But yeah, that they had three triple stumpers in this category. Yeah, it was it was very tough for them. And then the pangolin. They showed a picture of a pangolin at the thousand dollar level, and it's like name this animal. It's like okay, that's a pangolin. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, Daily Double number one is in the What a Dive category at the $1,000 level. Tom finds it. 
It's pick number 24. He's at 3,000. Brendan is at 3,400. And Wendy's at 600. And he wagers 1,500. And he gets a clue, someone who profits or a backward somersault that lands feet first into the water. And he isn't able to offer anything, but that is a gainer or a full gainer. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I couldn't bring that to mind either. Yeah, me neither. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Tom is at 1,100. Brendan is at 4,800. And Wendy is at 1,600. And the double Jeopardy categories are Historic Henrys, Poets and Poetry, Thailand, Blank of the Blank, It's Their Song, and Starts and Ends with E. Not surprisingly, the Poets and Poetry category did not go well for me. Mm, I'm sorry but to I hear learned that. some things, so that's nice. Mm, I bet you got the $1,600 level. I did. And I knew the $2,000 yeah. level. Uh, Invictus. Yes. I knew that one. And I knew... To, I, I knew Dylan Thomas, so I guess only two of them, but I don't know. Yeah. they. The other two, oh, I was you didn't like, know. no. Okay. I couldn't remember Pablo Neruda's name mm. um, at the $800 level. The clue was this Chilean who wrote 20 love poems and a song of despair won the Nobel Prize in 1971. That's, the, that's a name I would have been able to bring to mind in you know, 20 seconds or something, but Mm -hmm. I just didn't have it on the tip of my tongue. Um, Pablo Neruda. Mm -hmm. And at the $1,200 level, this was a triple stumper. Um, Burnt Norton, East Coker, The Dry Salvages, and Little Gidding make up the group of Eliot's poems called Four These. Uh, That is four quartets. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I have not read Eliot's four quartets, but you think T.S. Eliot, you think The Wasteland, you think The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and you think The qu- Four Quartets, and is there something else I should be thinking of? The cats. Cats one. Yeah, the cats one. The whatever's guide to practical cats. Old, old possums, yeah, book of practical cats, like or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. I'm not sure which one of those four things is the most important to know about T.S. Eliot. Probably not the four quartets. That's why it's at a $1,200 level. But yeah, uh, but it's on, it's on the short list of things to know about T.S. Eliot. Mm-hmm. But now I know that because yeah. I could think of J. Alfred yeah. Prufrock and The Wasteland. I always forget that he's associated with cats. Mm, yeah. Uh <laughs> The more forgotten about cats, the better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, Daily Double number two is at the $1,600 level of blank of the blank. It's the 15th pick, and Brendan finds it. He has 12000 at this point. He's in a very solid lead. Uh, Tom's at 2300 Wendy's at 3200 Brendan wagers 4000 and gets the clue... One of Queen Elizabeth's official titles, it was first conferred on Henry VIII by Pope Leo X. Brandon guesses what is head of the Commonwealth. That is incorrect. Defender of the faith is what they're looking for here. Mm-hmm. And Daily Devil number three is in the historic Henry's category uh, at the $1,600 level. Brandon also finds this one. Uh, he is at 9200 It's pick number 21. Tom is at 3,100. Wendy's at 3,200, so he's still in a good lead. He wagers 2,000. He gets the clue. The Senate's great triumvirate was John C. Calhoun, Daniel Webster, and him. 
and he takes a guess on who is Patrick Henry. He got Henry in there, which is good. Uh, but that is Henry Clay. That is Henry Clay. Mm-hmm. Wrong, wrong time period for Patrick Henry. Yes. Uh, so he drops down another 2,000. But that didn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. So by the end of the double Jeopardy round, Brandon has a lock game with $8,800 uh, to Wendy's 3600 and Tom's 1100 They just had a tough time with yeah. these boards. I had a tough time with these boards also. I think they just ran a little more difficult, I think. Yeah, there were 13 triple and, stumpers this game. Yeah. A lot, of, um, a lot of lost money. They get the final Jeopardy category, triple A geography, A in quotation marks. And the clue is home to the Piazza Alberica. This Italian city is better known for what it supplied to works by Henry Moore and Michelangelo. Tom does not come up with a guess. Uh, so we just have what, what is question mark. And he's wagered 100, so he drops down to 1,000, which will turn out to be his consolation prize mm-hmm. also. Wendy wagers 1,100, not quite sure what her thought process is there. And she responds, what is Alba? That's not correct either, so she drops down to 2,500. And Brendan wagers 1,200. I guess he's trying to get up to 10,000. Yeah. yeah. And guesses what is paintbrush? That's paint not brushia. correct. Yeah. Yes, paint paintbrushia is what he was heading for. He says, which is cute. That's uh, that's not correct. And th- they were looking for what is Carrara, which apparently is a city known for its fine white marble. Yeah, I I, I it's I knew I knew it, but I could couldn't get to it. Uh, yeah, I don't know what I would have put if I were up there, but. It's like I know this term, I know this word. I have I have dealt with enough Renaissance history, especially art history to know this and I just could not get it. That's a tough mm-hmm. one. Yeah. I suspected that we were looking for a city known for its marble, mm-hmm. but I was not going to be able to bring Carrara to mind. I ended up thinking I would have put alabaster, mm-hmm. but I sort of knew that alabaster was not an Italian city. So I, I kind of knew that that didn't fit, but I couldn't think of another. I was hoping that maybe there was a type of marble that I'd heard of that maybe even if I didn't know if, that it was a city, you know, I might be able to get it that way. But I just, you know, I, once I heard the, the response, I was like, oh, yeah, I've, I think I might have heard of that at some point in my life. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was that was not something I was going to be able to get. So just kind of a rough game. Yeah. But that's okay. It happens. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants Anthony Jones, a certified financial planner from Falls Church, Virginia. Morgan Bryles, a librarian from Nacogdoches, Texas. And Brendan Sargent, a community organizer originally from Worcester, Massachusetts. Whose one-day cash winnings total $7,600. The Jeopardy round categories are all alliteration, nifty novels, terrific TV, potent potables, it's potables. It it's potables. But it's, yeah. But you know, it's us. We see you, Jeopardy writers. Uh, mm-hmm. Five facts and hopeful history. So all the all the category names are alliterative, and everything in the alliteration mm-hmm. category is also alliterative. Yes. So yeah, in the nifty novels category, um, 
If you listened to my uh, my Charles Dickens deep dive, you knew the $200 level. You probably knew that anyway. You're listening to a Jeopardy podcast. Mm-hmm. You beautiful nerds, you. <laughs> um, uh, the clue there was the young orphan protagonist in Great Expectations is known by this three-letter name. That's Pip. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Brendan got that one. And we also ta- have talked a number of times about the $400 level uh dragonfly and amber a sequel to this novel finds claire back in the 1960s seeking what happened to jamie in the 1740s uh that's a sequel to outlander mm-hmm. yep we had a funny triple stumper in the terrific tv category at the 800 dollars level we won't say the name of the sitcom but we can tell you this woman won a best lead actress emmy in 2020 for playing moira rose and Brendan rings in and just plows right through the, uh, like, trying to avoid saying it on national TV and says, what is Shit's Creek? And mm-hmm. so they put... They, they captioned it. They captioned it so that you could see what it actually, how it's spelled, so they didn't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. But no, they, they were looking for Catherine O'Hara. Mm-hmm. Yes, the, the actress, not the, not the sitcom what they were looking for there. At the $1,000 level of terrific TV, Ava DuVernay created this Netflix limited series about five Harlem teens falsely accused of an attack in Central Park. Uh, That is When They See Us about the Central Park Five, and that is something y'all should watch if you haven't. But it's very heavy. So, you know, you have to be ready for for something, you know, sort of pretty intense, um, but it's important viewing. Daily Double number one comes up in the all alliteration category at the $600 level. It's the 11th pick and Morgan finds it. She has a thousand and makes it a true Daily Double. Brendan's at 1800 at this point. Anthony is not on the board yet. And she gets the clue, this North American bird went the way of the dodo in 1914. And she knows that one. It is the passenger pigeon. Mm-hmm. Helps that you know it's alliteration. Because mm-hmm. there are not a lot of other options. There are some, but I mean, obviously that's yeah. the Was this in Learned League recently? The Carolina parakeet does not alliterate, but is another kind of extinct North American bird Mm. that has been coming up in trivia and reading for me recently nice last confirmed sighting was in 1910 so that the timeline lines up there Mm. too Mm -hmm. and the last known specimen perished in captivity at the cincinnati zoo in 1918 Mm. so at the end of the jeopardy round Brendan is at 5,600, Morgan's at 5,800, and Anthony's at 2,400. So he's on the board now. And we get the Double Jeopardy categories Shell Game, They Go Low, 90s Nonfiction, At the End of the Scary Movie, Lots of spoilers this week. We had the, <laughs> the TV finale and now the end of the scary movie, Europe. And losing you, that is the letter U. So um, these are going to be wordplay clues. Mm -hmm. To to be fair, for the spoiler, at least in the scary movie one, the most recent of these movies was made in the 90s. Yeah. So I I I wouldn't worry too much about that. Mm -hmm. And these are not really, I mean, the the, uh, TV 
finale ones, I think, gave some specific plot points. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are more like the last line, which yeah. doesn't necessarily give a whole lot away. Right. So in some of the cases, it does. Yeah. It at least tells um, you that the main character survives, I guess, in a number yeah. of ways. Speaking of that category, the Daily Double number two shows up pretty early. It's pick number three. It's in the scary movie category at the $1,600 level. Brendan finds it. Uh, he is at 7200 in the lead. Morgan's at 5800 Anthony's at 2400 He wagers 5000 So he seems to feel pretty confident in this category. He gets the clue. I used to hate the water. I can't imagine why. Uh, and he doesn't grab onto what that's referencing, and he guesses what is Gremlins, but that is Jaws. It's the end of Jaws. Mm-hmm. Yes. I did not recall that either. I don't watch scary movies all that much. I've seen Jaws, though. Mm. Yeah. I did recognize that one as the end of Jaws. I think I might have gotten all of these. Yeah, no, I got I got all these scary movie mm. lines. That's the only one I missed. I got the others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a few clues later, we get Daily Double number three as the seventh pick. So we get them off the board super early mm-hmm. in this game. Um, it's at the $1,200 level of Europe. And Morgan finds this one. She has 8200 to Brendan's 2200 and Anthony's 3200 she wagers 3000 and gets the clue a red shield on the door of an ancestral home in Europe gave this Jewish banking family its name and she correctly responds who are the Rothschilds mm-hmm. and then at the $1600 level of that category we had 200 Barbary macaques the only wild monkeys living in Europe called this natural wonder home uh, that's the rock of Gibraltar we talked about that one a while back we did. And, too yeah uh, Anthony just said what is Gibraltar and that was accepted I realized like obviously he knows what that is and it's fine to accept it I don't want to get like nitpicky about it but Gibraltar is not the natural wonder right, right. the rock of Gibraltar is a natural wonder but yes exactly it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Brendan is up to 16,600. Morgan is at 14,800 and Anthony is at 5,600. Uh, Brendan snuck into the lead right there at the end. Him and Morgan really, really fought it out. They get the final Jeopardy category, presidential elections and the clue. In the 1912 election, these two parties on the left of the political spectrum finished second and fourth, totaling one third of the votes. Anthony wrote, what are Democratic and Social Democrat, uh, which is incorrect uh, on both counts. He wagered fifty-five ninety-five, so he drops down to $5. Morgan wrote, what bull moose progressive and socialist, which is not grammatically correct, but it does satisfy the requirements for a correct response uh, in Final Jeopardy. And that is correct. And she wagered 6000 Uh Brendan wrote, what is Bull Moose and Democratic? Uh, which we know mm-hmm. is incorrect. Uh, that, and he wagered 13000 and won a cover bet. Uh, so he drops down to second place. And Morgan wins with 20800 mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the 1912 election was 
when Taft was running for re-election as the Republican, Teddy Roosevelt was upset with <clears throat> the way that he'd been doing things, so he formed his progressive party and ran against him, split the Republican vote, and essentially handed Woodrow Wilson the presidency as a Democrat. So the first place, you know, party there would be the Democrats. Second place would be the Progressive Party, and fourth place would be the Socialists. Because Taft did not win very much, so Taft, the Republicans would have been the third place party there. Yeah, I thought it was impressive that Morgan came up with Bull Moose Progressive, which I think is more than they needed to accept it. Right, um, because those are two different yeah. names for the same thing. Right, exactly. So, well, well deserved mm-hmm. win. I mean, they they fought to the end, but like it was a it was a tricky final jeopardy, and uh, yeah. So on Thursday we have the contestants: Garen Tellum, a stay-at-home dad from San Diego, California; Matt Walks, a digital journalist originally from Billings, Montana; and Morgan Bryles. A librarian from Nacogdoches, Texas, whose one-day cash winnings total $20,800. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, people in history, complete the ad slogan, units of measure, medical idioms, CIA world factbook number ones, and Sting, a video category uh, with clues presented by Sting. It's fun to see him get on the screen. And I thought they did a nice job of finding things that connected to his career and also to kind of other areas of knowledge. Mm -hmm. But Matt was very clearly a Sting fan, not only because he got four out of the five clues, but also because he kept going back to that category. Yes. Anytime he got control of the board, he went over to Sting until it was Mm -hmm. gone. Yep. Uh, Daily Double number one is in the People in History category. It was pick number two very early. Morgan found it. She had gotten the first clue in the round, and so she she picked it right up as pick number two. It's at the $400 level, and she wagers a 1000 The other two were at zero. She gets the clue. The town of Falaise in Normandy is home to a statue of this man, who was born there around 1028, and they showed a picture of the statue, not that that necessarily would give you much of a clue. Uh, really, the date is what's important in Normandy. Uh, but Morgan gets it with who is William the Conqueror. Mm-hmm. The $800 clue in the sting category got a little dig at Margaret Thatcher. That was, mm. that was fun. It was a long clue, but basically it boiled down to, they showed a picture of Margaret Thatcher and, you know, this British Prime Minister had anti-labor policies. That was yep. Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Morgan is up to 5,000, Matt is at 2,600, and Garen is at 1,400. The double Jeopardy categories are authors who served in the military, acts of Congress, add to your Latin, A-D in quotation marks, green, mountain, and boys. Mm-hmm. And I noticed in both rounds, Morgan started at the top of the left-hand category. I don't know if she mm. meant if, they, if that was, like, purposeful to start at the corner of the board or if she just liked those categories. But she just started at the top left, which I appreciated. Yeah, I like that, too. Um, but she's got that, you know, librarian energy. So mm-hmm. authors, mm-hmm. I would expect to be a wheelhouse sure. category for His- her. History as well, probably. But also mm-hmm. probably very orderly, you know? 
Yeah, exactly. One of the joys of being a parent who is into trivia is watching your child start to develop some trivia chops. Uh, In Authors Who Served in the Military at the $800 level, we had the clue, C.S. Lewis fought in this war, arriving at the front lines in the Somme Valley on his 19th birthday. Matt got that one. It is World War I. My seven-year-old didn't know that, but he said, Mom, I know who C.S. Lewis is. He wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. There we go. Yes. Connections. Connections. Make (laughs) the connections. Keep doing that. Do that thing. (laughs) That's right. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. Turn him into a trivia machine. Oh, like a, that's, like the, a, that's the dream. That's the dream. Yeah. Why do we have kids <laughs> if not to make them better versions of ourselves? Mm-hmm. That we can then live vicariously through. Exactly. That's that's how that's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, they need to fulfill all of my unrealized dreams. That's healthy. It's healthy. Thank and you. I'm sure... <laughs> therapists listening would be fine with it (laughs) Um. why else do you have kids what's the point otherwise have you met kids they're terrible (laughs) he's a teacher and a father uh Uh, anyway Uh, Daily Double number two comes up in the Acts of Congress category at that $1,200 level as the seventh pick. Garen finds this one and wagers $2,200. At this point, he has $4,200 to Morgan's $8,200 and Matt's $2,600. And he gets the clue. An 1872 act established a park in the territories of Montana and Wyoming near the headwaters of this region river and he correctly responds what is the yellowstone mm-hmm. which seemed kind of like a guess but a reasonable guess given yeah. the location and daily double number three is at pick number 20 it's the 1600 level in add tier latin matt finds it he is at 6600 uh morgan is at 13,800, and garen is at 9200 he wagers 4,000. It is late in the game. It's clue number 20, but I, I feel like that's a time to go all in. It'll get you almost up to the lead, and if you get it wrong, you're kind of out of the game anyway. But he wagers 4,000, which is big enough. And he gets the clue. This type of attack goes after the speaker rather than the idea. And he knows that that is ad hominem. I'm not sure that is a $1,600. I kind of felt like it should have been higher up, too. Although yeah. the it seemed like those first four were all fairly easy. Uh, the $2,000 clue was a triple stumper a term that I have heard before but never knew what it was. Uh, this tax term means in proportion to value. That's ad valorem. So now I know that. Mm-hmm. But I felt like yeah. that one was much more obscure than the other four. I thought the other four right. were all fairly like common. Yeah. Ad lib, ad hoc, ad astra as to the stars. They referenced the 2019 Brad Pitt movie. Mm-hmm. All pretty accessible. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Matt is in the lead with 16,200. Uh, Morgan's right behind him with 15,400. Garen has 10,800. And we have the final Jeopardy category Broadway roles. And the clue of the more than 15 actors to play the lead in this musical, Howard McGillen holds the record with over 2,500 performances. Garen guesses what is Oklahoma. That is not correct. He's wagered 10,750. So everything but 
$50. That is probably not the right move in this situation. Morgan has the correct response with what is Phantom of the Opera? Nice job, Morgan. I thought the the key here um, is you want to try and think of something that ran for a really long time. Yes. And that is not especially, you know, like, I feel like some some shows like like it's more of a star vehicle or, you know, whatever, like you, right. um, you really kind of, you know, you, you want like a known name in the, in the lead role, like, you know, the Phantom, it's about, it's about the show. It's about mm-hmm. the experience. I don't know. It is misery. If I never see it again, it'll be too soon. Um, <laughs> you don't care for it? <laughs> Uh, not A, not especially, um, and B, when somebody comes to visit their friend who lives in New York and is trying to think of a New York thing to do, bless them, they're like, what about going to see Phantom of the Opera? Uh, <laughs> so I'm so sorry. I've seen, I think I've seen Phantom of the Opera on Broadway like four or five times. Um, and I know that there are people who really just want to see Phantom on Broadway and mm-hmm. like... Mm-hmm. You know, I get it. Like, you know, I support you. It's a fine show. Like, you can have my ticket. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Matt has the wrong guess. He's guessed what is The Music Man, um, which is a very fine show. Um, yeah. But not the correct one here. Yeah. Um, uh, and he made a cover bet of 14,601, so he drops down. Did I say did I say Morgan's wager it was a thousand? So she was just trying to get over Matt's current score. Um, yeah, but, but I th- yeah, not not make too big a wager. But I also think a thousand is really smart because of think about Garen. Garen could have reached Matt, and if he had wagered, you know, fifty four oh one to get a dollar mm-hmm. above Matt's, Morgan gave a, a large amount of like buffer past that possibility. Exactly. Yes, I thought it was very savvy. That's a good point. And so Morgan gets another win and uh, gets 16,400 in this game. And we'll see her again on Friday. That's right. And on Friday, we have the contestants Nick Cascone, an orthopedic physician assistant originally from Queens, New York. Jelana Rose Silverberg, a data analyst originally from Madison, Wisconsin. And Morgan Bryles, a librarian from Nacogdoches, Texas, whose two-day cash winnings total $37,200. And we get the Jeopardy round categories Jobs in the Bible, Pirate Flags, American History, Get Them While They're Cold, Does That Ring a Bell, and On His Baseball Hall of Fame Plaque. We have another reference to your Deep Dive Deep Dive a thousand dollar level of does that ring a bell mm-hmm. the clue is the bathyscaphe evolved from this bell and that's a diving, diving bell. bell that's right about that yes nick got that one yep jobs in the bible was a fun category i thought i did not know the 600 dollars level and neither did anyone else uh genesis 10 says nimrod was a mighty this before the lord Nick tried what is warrior, and then it turned into a triple stumper. Um, apparently, Nimrod was a mighty hunter. I did not remember that. Yeah, that's around the story of Babel, I think. Yeah. Nimrod is somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. It's a Bible name, but it sounds like an insult. 
and I felt this, other than Nimrod, I felt like this was all pretty accessible. We had who was uh, in Luke 2 uh, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Uh, that's shepherds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted to know who Jesus recruited by the Sea of Galilee, uh, two brothers. What was their job? Uh, Nick Nick gave the names of the brothers, which was a, a, a an incorrect response. They were looking for fishing or fishermen. We had another triple stumper at the $800 level. Skeptical folks in a synagogue ask, is not this the blank, the son of Mary? Uh, in essence, what was Jesus's day job? He was a carpenter. And then there was one about old time copyists uh, whom Jesus calls hypocrites. Those are scribes. If I were writing this category, I think I probably would have put something about a tent maker, which Paul alludes to as the thing that he does to make money. Hmm. Uh, there also is, um, in Acts, this would be like more of a, if you were putting it in the double jeopardy round, like a $2,000 clue. In Acts, there's, um, a woman who is, a, an important part of the early church named Lydia. She is a seller of purple cloth. Purple cloth. Seller of pur- purple cloth. Yes. Problem, you might make that like, in which book of the Bible do you find this person and, you know, say something about the book of Acts or something, um, because I wouldn't expect anyone to be able to access Lydia or seller of purple cloth, but Acts of the Apostles might be, might be your way in. Yeah. We find the first Daily Double at the $1,000 level of American history as the 12th pick. Nick finds this one and makes it a true daily double with 1600. Uh, he's tied with Morgan at that point. Jelana has a thousand. And he gets the clue. In 1840, this former president went to St. Louis Cathedral in New Orleans to honor an event that occurred 25 years earlier. He thinks on it for quite a while and ends up missing it uh, because he's too late, but also the his response that he tries to get in before the bell is incorrect. He tries Martin Van Buren uh, the correct response here is Andrew Jackson. So you should be thinking of the Battle of New Orleans. Or if you go to New Orleans, there there's a fair amount of kind of Andrew Jackson history, like statues and streets and stuff named after him. I don't remember well the history about Andrew Jackson and the Battle of New Orleans. I know it's a thing, um, but I remember seeing lots of lots of Andrew Jackson stuff around New Orleans when we were there. Yeah, it was the last battle the war of 1812 and it took place after the treaty of ghent had already been signed Mm. the news just hadn't reached them yet yeah so at the end of the jeopardy round nick has um recovered and gotten into a lead with 4600 jelana is at 3400 morgan's at 2200 and we have the double jeopardy categories an honorary knight to remember the human body ends in a female first name lakes play in the word in is part of each title and game i thought the ends in a female first name category was a fun wordplay category yeah at the 400 dollars level was pretty accessible a preliminary election such as new hampshire's famous presidential one that's a primary um but then we started to get a little tricky um because sometimes the female first names I sort of expected them to, like, function as syllables within the word, if that makes sense. But in some cases, 
it was just a female first name, but there was an additional letter at the beginning, uh, such as a landlocked nation of South America, that is Bolivia. Um, I assume mm-hmm. the female first name they were thinking of was Olivia. <laughs> uh, so you just add a B, mm-hmm. right? Like that's right. at the $1,200 level, a condition of extreme dishonor applied to a date in a speech by FDR. That is infamy. The female first name there is Amy. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. So... So yeah, I thought these were a little a little more challenging than I would have initially anticipated, but I thought it was a very but it was good. yeah it was a fun category. Mm-hmm. Uh, daily double number two is pretty early in the round. It's pick number four. They kind of went daily double hunting, uh, and Nick found it. It's at the sixteen hundred dollar level in the human body. Uh, he is up to seventy four hundred. Over Morgan's 2,600 and Jelana's 3,400, and he makes it another true daily double, wagering all 7,400. And the clue is, these endocrine glands secrete the hormones epinephrine and cortisol. And he gets that correct with the adrenal glands. Mm-hmm. Then just a few clues later, he uncovers daily double number three as the ninth pick at the $1,600 level of play-in. At this point, he is at 18,800 to Morgan's 4,600 and Jelana's 3,400, and he wagers 8,000 and gets the clue, can't find your way? This Neil Simon title mentions a city on the Hudson, north of the Bronx. I'm about a mile from that city, but I did not remember the full title of the play. Good on Nick for uh, also a New Yorker for thinking of the correct city, but he you know doesn't know the play title. Um, he tries in Yonkers. Um, that is not correct. The correct response here is Lost in Yonkers. I believe that was the the remake of Lost in Space. Right? <laughs> Sounds correct. Yeah. Yeah. I I really enjoyed uh, the movie The Imitation Game, so I liked mm-hmm. seeing that clue at the sixteen hundred dollar level. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch starred as Enigma code breaking Alan Turing in this two thousand fourteen film, um, and Nick got that one. It's a good movie. I liked it. Yeah, it was yeah. really good. I mean, yeah, it's a depressing story overall, but it was a very very well made movie. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, good scores for everyone. Morgan is at 11,800, Jelana is at 13,400, and Nick is at 15,200. They get the final Jeopardy category artists, and the clue, the February 17, 1901 death of his friend Charles Kasigamas made this grief-stricken artist change his color palette. And everyone got this. Uh, Morgan wagered 10,000. Feels a bit much there, but she got it correct with who, who Pablo Picasso, but that is correct. So she jumps up to 21,800. Uh, Jelana also wrote who is Picasso, then crossed out Picasso and wrote Picasso, which is correct. And she wagered 11,801, uh, which gets her up to 25,201. But Nick also got it correct with who was Picasso with a cover bet of 11,601. Uh, which makes him the new champion. Mm-hmm. I feel like the blue period has been a recent Final Jeopardy. I alluded to it something. in a in a quiz on here recently, for that might have been sure. It. I just feel like I've talked about the blue period very recently, and maybe that yeah. Was but I definitely, I definitely had it as a as a quiz question, like in my last quiz or the one before that. 
Okay. Yeah. That's what so I'm that's, thinking of. Yes. And uh, this is the end of Katie Couric's stint as guest host. And I think she did a fabulous job. Um, yeah, I she did really well. Yeah. Uh, and next week, Dr. Oz will be on. And yep. then two weeks after that, it will be someone else. Um, yep. <laughs> and that's what I have to say about that. Uh, uh, yeah. So this is the break at the middle of the episode where we remind you that we have a Patreon. Um, if you sent me a message, sent us a message on Patreon in the last like two months, for some reason, we were not getting notifications of those. So we just saw those and thank you for your messages. And thank you for being patrons, those of you who are patrons. Um, uh, I'd like to say a word of thanks to new patrons, including Matt Ryan, Joshua Wood, Gabriella Kaufman, uh, and Ian Schultz. Oh, and my mom. <laughs> no, mom. yeah. I think we thanked the ones before that. Let's go ahead and thank them just in case we missed them. Eric W., Malika Baker, Matt Carberry, and Michael Jones. I'm quite sure that we got Matt Carberry and Michael Jones, but thanks, guys, mm -hmm. um, for being patrons. And thank you to everyone who has left us ratings and reviews. Um, on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere. Um, Lynn in NC left a review saying, fun listen. I enjoy listening to Emily and Kyle's weekly analysis of the episodes. Their love for Jeopardy is infectious. Aw, thank you, Lynn. Folks, if you have not left us a review, it would be super helpful if you would do that. Yeah. So get on it. Let us know what you think. As long as you think that it's 100% positive. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> those five-star ratings and those glowing reviews. That is... But if you if you have feedback for us, we're, we're happy to hear it. But yeah, the five... Emily's happy the, to hear it. <laughs> uh, I, I, that's part of the training. It's part of the training. It's <laughs> taking and assessing the validity of feedback. Um, that's right. If it is good feedback, then it's valid. Um, <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. All right. So, Emily, care to tell tell the fine viewers what our deep dive is going to be on this week? It's going to be about Henry Clay. Oh, my God. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I did it again! <laughs> I mean, I know I kind of have a brand, but really, like, there were a lot of triple stumpers this week. Um, with, I felt like a lot of them were not really good deep dive fodder, That's, though. You know, I also actually kind of thought that, too. I looked at a lot of them like, what would I talk about about that? Like, mm -hmm. it's just a thing. Like, that's yeah. what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. We're going to talk about the Great Triumvirate. So awesome. this is from... <sighs> This is from Tuesday's game, Double Jeopardy, the historic Henry's category. It was the missed daily double. The Senate's great triumvirate was John C. Calhoun, Daniel Webster, and him. That was Henry Clay. Uh, so yeah, we're going to quickly talk about the great triumvirate, each of those members, and a little bit about like their important events in their time. As the clue said, the great triumvirate, who were also known as the Immortal Trio, which I thought was interesting considering they both or they all three died within like three years of each other it refers to the three statesmen who dominated american politics for uh, a good portion of the first half of the 19th century henry clay of kentucky daniel webster of massachusetts and john c calhoun of south carolina 
They were all three extremely active in politics. At various times, they each served as Secretary of State, and they were all together both in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Henry Clay was the oldest. He got into politics first, serving as counsel for Aaron Burr in his treason trial. Uh, and then he was in the Senate before being elected Speaker of the House for the 12th Congress. John C. Calhoun entered Congress around that time, and he was ideologically similar to Henry Clay, uh, and they became friends, and he kind of, I don't want to say rode the coattails, but his friendship with Henry Clay helped him uh, become prominent fairly early, especially as a leader of the Warhawks, who were the faction of congressmen who were pushing for war with England in the lead-up to the War of 1812. So that other Daily Double talking about Andrew Jackson and the Battle of New Orleans is somewhat related to this. Uh, Daniel Webster was elected to Congress in 1813, and he uh, was on the opposite side. He was an anti-war and anti-administration federalist. Uh, and so Webster often clashed with uh, Calhoun and Clay, over a variety of things. Not only the push for war, but also post-war issues like the Second Bank of the United States, the Tariff of 1816. After the 14th Congress, Calhoun became Secretary of War, and Webster declined re-election and focused on his law practice in Boston. Uh, during that time, he went before the Supreme Court in uh, a number of cases, including Dartmouth College versus Woodward, Gibbons versus Ogden, and McCullough v. Maryland, uh, in which he represented the Bank of the United States. Uh, so I just threw out a bunch of, like, a bunch of things. Uh, the second Bank of the United States uh, was the second federally authorized Hamiltonian National Bank. It was in Philadelphia. And it, its 20-year charter ran from 1816 to 1836. Uh, it was a private corporation with public duties, and, you know, it's a national bank. Uh, the National Bank has been, was a big clashing point in the early part of our country. You know, a number of people were for a National Bank, a, a number of people were against it because they viewed it as giving too much power to the federal government to control the economy, or you know, what have you. There were a lot of a lot of things that really I don't particularly know about uh, in terms of like all of the specifics as to why people are opposed or in favor of a national bank but it was a major issue and so they clashed with each other about it uh the second cha bank was chartered by president madison in 1816 it became the a, a, a central issue in the election of 1832 uh, in which pro-bank national republicans led by henry clay clashed with the hard money andrew jackson administration and eastern banking interests in what became called the bank war which mm. is a Another another deep dive topic, really. As you may know, Andrew Jackson was uh, strongly, firmly against the National Bank. That was one of his biggest uh, um, campaign promises, was to take apart the National Bank. That was the second National Bank, or the second bank of the United States. I also mentioned that the tariff of 1816, that was partly uh, a solution to uh, avoid projected federal deficit of the time. That was uh, reported by the Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander J. Dallas. And it was approved as a temporary measure for only three years. Uh, Northerners wanted it to uh, extend beyond, basically forever. 
uh, after tensions with Great Britain had eased. Uh, However, Southerners were opposed to protective tariffs because it made certain things more expensive, especially uh, given the way that the the South, the cotton industry functioned. A lot of that was shipped overseas and then shipped back. And, you know, textile industry across the Atlantic then had to pay more for these tariffs than that would eventually fall back on the uh, cotton producing Southern states. So that was another thing that they were opposed, that they were like fighting about. Mm-hmm. Some of those cases that I mentioned with Daniel Webster, Dartmouth College v. Woodward, was uh, a landmark decision in the United States corporate law dealing with the application of co- the contracts clause of the United States Constitution to private corporations. The president of Dartmouth College was deposed by its trustees. And the New Hampshire legislator attempted to force the college to become a public institution. But the Supreme Court upheld the sanctity of the original charter of the college, which predated the creation of the state. So this was a, a, a win for private corporation, free market, free enterprise, that kind of thing. Uh, I also mentioned Gibbons v. Ogden from 1824. The Supreme Court upheld the power uh, to regulate interstate con- commerce was granted to Congress by the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, and that encompassed the power to regulate navigation. Uh, so that was that was a win for federal power, as well as uh, McCullough v. Maryland, which you may have actually heard of. I hadn't heard of the other two, but I'd heard of this one. Uh, this was essentially the Supreme Court solidifying the Necessary and Proper Clause, Uh, stating that the U.S. federal government has certain implied powers that are not explicitly enumerated in the Constitution, and that the American federal government is supreme over states, so states' ability to interfere with federal government is limited. Uh, And this was in 1819. Uh, So this was another big step in the direction of strengthening the federal government. The three were reunited in the Senate in 1832, so we're back to the triumvirate, all three of them. Calhoun resigned from the vice presidency uh, and was elected to the Senate. This was during the nullification crisis, which was a political crisis from 1832 to 1833 during the presidency of Andrew Jackson. So the state of South Carolina basically wanted to secede because they declared that the federal tariffs of 1828 and 1832 were unconstitutional. Uh, Well, not really secede, I should say, but... They, those tariffs were unconstitutional, therefore null and void within the sovereign boundaries of the state. It was the idea that states can nullify federal law uh, if they determine those laws to be unconstitutional. Um, this was kind of the predecessor to the talk of secession, especially in South Carolina. And like I said, it led to John C. Calhoun leaving the vice presidency over it um, mm-hmm. and returning to the Senate. This crisis sort of subsided with the negotiated compromise tariff of 1833 but it really the the feelings continued all the way up to the civil war and the secession of you know the confederate states so all three of them would remain in the senate until their deaths uh except for when webster and calhoun would become secretary of state and when clay temporarily stepped away to run for president in 1844 and 1848 they each represented the three major sections of the United States at that time. Uh, So Henry Clay from Kentucky represented the Western settlers. Uh, Daniel Webster represented the Northern businessmen. And John C. Calhoun represented the Southern slaveholders. 
and so they're they're they were the strongest voices for all those parts uh in the federal government and they were the leading voices in the debates about the compromise of 1850 uh and that was really the last time that the three of them really took center stage because john c calhoun died just two weeks after the compromise of 1850 was decided uh he was actually so ill at the time during the debates that he wasn't able to deliver his speech and instead he had he had a colleague james mason read it for him uh and then within the next three years henry clay and daniel webster would also die uh, and they were followed up by the likes of Jefferson Davis, William Seward, and Stephen Douglas. So they were all part of the the second party system. And so this is basically 1828 to the Civil War, essentially. And this is the split between uh, the Democratic Party and the Whig Party. So the first party system, you may know, uh, probably know, were essentially the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, or the Federalists and the Democratic-Republicans. Mm. The Federalists were in favor of a stronger federal government, a more centralized uh, government in the new country, and the Democratic-Republicans tended to be uh, more on the side of states' rights, smaller centralized government, more agrarian, that kind of thing. Uh, that transformed into uh, the democrat and Whig parties of the second party system. And, and there were other parties in there too. We get the anti-Mason party, which was kind of a joke. There there was also the know-nothing party, but those were small. But also, you know, toward the end, we get the emergence of the new Republican party, as well as the Free Soil party, and all of that. But this was dominated by those two, the Democrats and the Whigs. <laughs> Henry Clay was essentially the leader of the Whig party. Uh, Daniel Webster was originally a Federalist, and then he was part of the National Republican and Whig Party. And um, John C. Calhoun was a Democratic Republican and Democrat. Each of these men uh, had huge biographies. You could, you could, I could do a deep dive on each one of them and still not get to everything. So I didn't want to really like hit everything about them. More talk about the things that they were involved in together. Um, so one of those things was the uh, American system, which was a plan to strengthen and unify the nation advanced by the Whig Party, especially Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams. This was an economic plan to kind of guide American the American uh, economy in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, it comes from Alexander Hamilton's ideas of the American school. And uh, it's basically made up of three parts. The ta a tariff to protect and promote American industry, a national bank to foster commerce, and federal subsidies for roads, canals, and other internal improvements to develop profitable markets for agriculture. Uh, this was a big push from Henry, Henry Clay. And, of course, I already talked about the national bank, and I already talked about the problem with tariffs. So this, those things, those were part of this overall American system plan that henry clay was pushing uh and so he got pushed back from other people uh depending on you know how they felt about that they also dealt with the missouri compromise this was in 1820 all of these compromises basically everything after the american revolution led up to the civil war right because the whole the whole issue was slavery mm -hmm. and, and until 
you know, the Civil War, that was what everything was basically about. Uh, so the Missouri Compromise, Compromise was federal legislation that stopped Northern attempts to forever prohibit slavery's expansion by admitting Missouri as a slave state in exchange for other law prohibiting slavery north of the 36 degrees 30 minutes parallel, except for Missouri. So everything south of that line could have slaves, nothing north of that line could have slaves except for Missouri. Uh, And this passed on March 3rd, 1820, signed by James Monroe. And so this was early on. The Whig Party had not yet been established, so uh, Henry Clay was Speaker of the House. He, he had to work pretty hard to try and break the deadlock between the House and the Senate. They, they, they couldn't agree on a bill to pass in you know regards to this. He succeeded in pressuring a lot of the anti-restrictionist Southerners to um, allow what was called the Thomas Proviso, which was the part that prohibited slavery north of the 3630 line uh, in the Louisiana Purchase. And... He also got Northerners to back off on allowing Missouri to be a slave state. So it was really his work that kind of guided that compromise to happen in the first place. Who knows if it was actually a good idea or not. Like, looking back, it's like, well, it didn't avoid a war, but, you know. Mm. The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 and the Dred Scott decision basically declared the, the compromise unconstitutional anyway. So, But then the big thing was the Compromise of 1850. Compromise of 1850 was a package of five separate bills passed by the United States Congress in September of 1850. It attempted to diffuse political confrontation between slave states and free states, particularly pertaining to the status of the territories acquired in the Mexican-American War. It also established Texas's western and northern borders and included provisions addressing fugitive slave laws and the slave trade. Again, Henry Clay was kind of... uh, one of the leading figures in kind of fostering this deal, along with Stephen Douglas uh, and the support of President Millard Fillmore. Basically, it was a continuation of the the same argument that had been going on the whole time. It's like, you know, do we allow slaves in new states? How do we do that? Uh, I should say, do we allow slavery in free states? You know, if so, how do we do that? Uh, You know, Southerners pushing for it, Northerners pushing against. And... A bunch of new land had been won, I guess, from Mexico, including uh, the former Republic of Texas. So the provisions of it were, like I said, uh, establishing the border of Texas, which is why it's so big. Uh, It kept a lot of the land that was taken from Mexico. And one important part is that the, like, northern boundary is essentially the 3630 parallel, uh, as it was admitted as a slave state. Also, part of this was the Fugitive Slave Law, uh, or the Fugitive Slave Act, and this essentially says that any person who is enslaved and, like, runs away, even if they run away to a free territory or a free state, that any federal marshal or other officer is required to apprehend and return that slave, which, of course, was a major problem. Mm-hmm. They did end the slave trade in the District of Columbia. Small bonus there. Uh, but those are like the big components of the Compromise of 1850. Uh, and then, like I said, after 1850, after the Compromise of 1850, uh, John C. Calhoun died just a few weeks 
Daniel Webster uh, died in October of 1852, and Henry Clay died in June of 1852. And there we go. All right. That's the Great Triumvirate. The Great Triumvirate. The next question is, will I be able to remember more than two of them at a time in the future? Uh, <laughs> because I, yeah. I know the Great Triumvirate is a thing. And, like, for whatever reason, I can only ever remember two of them at a time. Like, mm-hmm. Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, and the other guy. Or, or, and, then, and then it switches. And I can remember the other guy, but I have to forget either Henry Clay or Daniel Webster. Can't have mm-hmm. them all three at the same time. So now, hopefully, all three will stick. Yep. Thanks. Are you ready for a quiz? Oh, I'm always ready for a quiz. All right, here we go. Question one. Henry Clay was a prominent member of the Whig Party. You may also know that there was at one time a Whig Party in the UK, from which the American Party took its name. What nickname did American Whigs call President Jackson, suggesting the reason for their choice in moniker? Wait, so it is... I can give you a little more if you want. Yeah, give me a little more. The... Whig party in the UK uh, was historically opposed to the Tory party, if that helps you get an idea of what the Whig party stood for or against. Hmm. All right. So we're looking for a nickname of Andrew Jackson. Yes. That relates to the Whig party. I'm not sure I'm, I get the connection with Whig Party. The only nickname I'm thinking of for Andrew Jackson is Old Hickory, and I'm just going to go with that and hope that there's a connection I'm not seeing. It is not Old Hickory. The Whigs called him King Andrew. Oh, because okay. Because they felt that, that he was an authoritarian. Jackson's threat of federal uh, military force against South Carolina during the nullification mm-hmm. crisis led the Whig party to, uh, you know, call him a tyrant and uh, call him King Andrew. The Whig party Mm -hmm. in the UK was also a strong parliamentary party Mm -hmm. and opposed to the Tories who were uh, much more in favor of the power of the monarchy. Right, exactly. Uh, Yeah. so Mm -hmm. So that's where the Whigs in America got their name because they were opposed to King Andrew. Oh, okay. All right. Cool. I I did not know uh, about um, uh, King Andrew as a as a nickname, but mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. All right, so you still have ten points because you nailed the topic, so you're good. Mm-hmm. You're good. Question two: Triumvirate is a title that traces back to ancient Rome. For three points each and a bonus if you get all three, who were the first triumvirate of the Roman Republic? Oh, no. I don't think I know any of them. Drat. I'm sure that it's names I've heard. Uh, But I'm not sure if I can bring them to mind. And helpfully, my brain is starting to supply every name that has to do with the end of the Roman Republic. (laughs) Thank you, brain. No, wait. End of the... Uh... All right. All right. Um, 
I cannot remember where the triumvirate fits in in Roman history, but my brain is saying Julius Caesar. So we're going to go with that. And then Cicero is coming up and I can't think of a third. Okay. Well, you get three points because Julius Caesar is correct. Huh. Yes. Uh, the other two right. are Pompey, or Gaius Pompeius, and Marcus Licinius Crassus. Okay. All right. I do, in fact, know those names. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your right. brain pushing you toward the end of the Roman Republic was a good, was your brain doing the right thing? Good job, um, brain. You know, the, triumv- the triumvirate kind of eventually led to the right emperor end mm-hmm. of the re- Republic, beginning of the empire, that kind of thing. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, your, your brain was doing the right thing. It was, there we it was go. pointing in the right direction. Question three. A short story from 1938 by Stephen Vincent Benet tells the story of Jebez Stone, a farmer from Cross Corners, New Hampshire. Stone faces bad turn after bad turn and, in desperation, agrees to sell his soul to one Mr. Scratch in return for some good fortune. Years pass, and when Mr. Scratch comes to collect, Jebez Stone calls on the legal and oratory services of a notable statesman slash lawyer. He demands a trial, as is the right of any American citizen, and though the odds are stacked against them, Stone and his attorney are victorious. What is the title of this patriotic story that has been adapted to both film and stage? I think it's called The Devil and Daniel Webster. It is called The Devil and Daniel Webster. Yay. Well done. You got it. That is a title that I have known for a long time, but I did not know anything else about it. So I looked it up and like read the you know synopsis and everything, and it, it seems interesting. But yeah. also... Also weird. Like, yeah. Weird. I like uh-huh. <laughs> oddly like specifically patriotic and also Yeah, just weird. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you got it. Nice job. Alright, you're at twenty-three points. Question four. The newly added state of Texas was a major issue in the Compromise of 1850. I've already stated in this question that Texas was and is a state, so I'll give you the United States of America. For two points each, name the other five of the six flags that have flown over Texas. All right. Other five of the six flags that have flown over Texas. It was a Confederate state, so a Confederate flag. I, I'm not sure. I, I There's like historical stuff I haven't super delved into about like... The, like the stars and bars being specifically a battle flag. So I don't know if that's... But we'll, if we'll, you just say Confederacy. Yeah, we'll, confederacy. yeah we'll, we'll say Confederate flag. Um, there's like the like the Lone Star, like the, like the Texas flag, right? I think that's one of them. Is that is that There's a correct? particular is that a, word you need to include. Oh, uh, like the... Is it like Republic of Texas or something like that? I'm trying to... Like, uh, Republic um, of Texas is correct, yes. Okay, all right. Uh, all right. I'm not good at Texas history, but, like, I think at some point the Mexican flag. Is that... Yep. Yes, okay. Is the is the stupid snake flag one of the flags? The, like, the Gadsden flag? No, it is not. Okay. I know it has... One, I know one that, more. Uh, all right. Um, I need to remind myself of the history of that flag which i know is 
problematic. Um, probably be, probably be like a, like a colonial, like European colonial for Texas. Spain? I'm going to go, go with Spain. Spain is correct. Yes. All right. Cool. Um, then the one that you missed was <sighs> France. Oh, France. Okay. Yes, yeah. France uh, was, whether you consider part of the Louisiana Purchase or also when France was temporar- temporarily uh, in control of Mexico, which is where we get the celebration of Cinco de Mayo was mm-hmm. Mexican citizens fighting against the French. Right. Empire. Yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so the you got f- four out of those five, so you get eight points. You're up to 31 points. Yeah, it's Spain, France, Mexico, Republic of Texas, Confederate States of America, and United States of America are the six flags over Texas. Question five. Daniel Webster arb- argued McCullough v. Maryland before the United States Supreme Court. That case was cited in the 1904 case Demden v. Petter. The first substantial case brought before the high court of what other country? Though they recognized American law was in no way binding to them, the case was relevant because of the similarities in constitutions between the two countries, particularly concerning interactions between federal and state governments. Hmm. Federal and state? What was the name of the 1904 case again? Uh, Demden v. Petter. All right, I don't know if that helps me at all. Um, I'm going to guess Liberia. That's not a bad guess, but the correct answer is Australia. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They have states. They do have states, and their constitution is apparently very similar to ours. I did not know that about them. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. I came across yeah, that fact. Well, that's and I was fascinating. Like, huh. Yeah, they, they brought up this other case from, yeah, significantly before uh, to argue in favor of. Demden v. Petter was something like, uh, he, he was like suing because the state was taking taxes from his federal, like he was a federal employee, and then he was like suing because of that or something. And so the the interaction between federal and, and state commerce laws and everything was why that was brought up. All right. Uh, you're at 31 points. And the final category is collegiate history close to home. All right. I'm going to regret wagering it all, but I'm wagering it all. Okay. I don't, I don't know that you will regret it, but I think, I think you'll be fine. Uh, all right. Here we go. John C. Calhoun was a slave owner and, of course, owned a plantation. That plantation, Fort Hill, was bequeathed to his wife and daughter when he died. They sold it and 50 slaves to a relative, and when that relative died, the mortgage was foreclosed. Who foreclosed that mortgage, later bequeathing the property to the state for use as an agricultural college to be named after him? Um, I'm going to assume... That we're talking about Clemson. I'm guessing Clemson. We are talking about Thomas Green Clemson. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Well done. Well done. You got 62 points. 
Yeah, I oh, all right. saw that little, like, got to that little little tidbit around John C. Calhoun's death, and I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta ask this. I gotta ask this for diehard Clemson fan. Yep. Emily. Yes, indeed. Yes. Uh, if you're um, if you're listening, but you're not super familiar with my biographical background, my husband grew up close to Clemson, and uh, they are they are hardcore Clemson fans. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, every game, always. And I've I've been drawn in, although I still am embarrassingly terrible at understanding football. Yeah, but. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. Hey, I redeemed myself. Hey, you, yeah, you did well. All right. Um, that was that was great. Great deep dive. Great quiz. Uh, great talking about Jeopardy with you, Kyle. So thank you. Yes. Um, and thank you, listeners, for uh, for spending your time with us. A delight as always. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and or a review if you would be so kind. Um, if you want to check out our Patreon, it's at patreon.com slash potent potables. Um, and even if that's not something that you're interested in, you can tell your friends about our podcast, especially if they like Jeopardy. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables one our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back with you next week with another week of Jeopardy! Yay. It's hosted by Dr. Oz next week, but the contestants will be great, and the questions will be great. Uh, and <laughs> I need to stop throwing shade at Dr. Oz. <laughs> um, <laughs> until then... May your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.